Good morning, good afternoon. Thank you again for joining us on a very special episode of the Galleria podcast. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Carl. Hello, how are we and going? It, and it's a momentous occasion. We're joined with our very first guest on the Galleria podcast and what a special one it is. Introducing filmmaking genius, actor, director and general Yorkshire badass, we have got Liam Regan. Oh, that's an I, intro, I, that. <laughs> an intro, I, intro and a half. I strive to have an intro like that in my life. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so looking into what Liam's done then, um, I, Liam first came from my radar from a mutual friend. Um, and funnily enough, it's a mutual friend of actually all three of us. Um, I originally met Kelsey um, through Carl. And then obviously come on to that. She, she put me in touch with Liam. Um, and then looking into his, his films and what he's produced and his, uh, his career at the minute, we, we struck a, a very similar string um, as the Banjo film, which is uh, Liam's... Is it your first feature film? Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. My Bloody Banjo is the first one, yeah. Um, so, again, if you would give a, a quick synopsis of what Bloody Banjo is, if you can, if you want to. Yeah, sure. It's about a guy that snaps the banjo string on his penis, and then he um, conjures up his imaginary friend to exact revenge on the people that bully him. So it's a pretty... Uh, it's actually like a... Um, it's like, uh, yeah, it's like that. <laughs> the, the bottom line with it is pretty is, I think it's one of the things that the synopsis of Banjo is very broad, but then when you watch the film, you you very quickly gain the idea and the genre of what the film's about. I think the yeah, synopsis I mean, a lot does... Of people will be... Go on, sorry. Go on. Go on, sorry. No, I was just saying, I think the synopsis does well, because if I read that on the back of a DVD case, I'd definitely be buying it. So uh, I think it do, it's enough to make you want to watch it. It's intriguing enough. So because we had a, we had a conversation last week about you know back in the day when you used to read synopsises and that you used to rent films based on that. Now you get your trailers on the internet and stuff like that. But if I read that, I'd be straight down and had a picture of Ronnie on back. I'd be you know I'd be taking it home one hundred percent. So it's a great synopsis in my opinion. So especially when you hear the word banjo string being snapped, I'm like yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. <laughs> you know a lot of people describe it as like drop dead fred meets basket case and it's essentially like a horror comedy you know and um yeah i mean the the whole idea, the whole banjo idea came about when i had a real life um sexual accident where i snapped my banjo string and i didn't even know what a, a banjo string was at a time you know I, I just thought oh shit where's all this blood coming from what's happened right um and then like man it, it was scary because i was like so yeah so i had unprotected sex and <laughs> um, you know and let's just say I, I was i was very passionate during this session and i snapped what the, well, the frenulum is the actual term for it the, the frenulum the, the technical and, term a technical term is frenulum. And then I went to the uh, the toilet and uh, I noticed that blood was protruding from my penis. So then I took uh, a roll of tissue paper and mummified my cock. It up. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, then I, and then I went to sleep and then I woke up the next morning with a small pool of blood. So I was bleeding throughout the night. And then me and my ex-girlfriend, we were uh, uh, partners at the time, um, we went to see the Mother's Day remake in Leicester Square because this happened in London. And I okay. said to her after the Mother's Day remake, hey, what happened last night may make for a great premise for a horror film. And then... I and then Banjo was born. Yeah. That's, that's probably one of the coolest stories on how I got the idea for a film ever. I, th I don't think that 
can be topped personally. As as a as a standout film from a, from just a thought, obviously I heard you talk about Clerks uh, and Kevin Smith in in your behind the scenes stuff. Very similar premise to that. It's a it was something that happened to him. It was a you know his, his convenience store, his day job. So I think it breeds independence uh, genius at that point. Like it, it brings out. I think the real life stories adaptations into film are a fantastic sort of segue into the uh, the movie industry as such. Um, oh, but we're gonna completely. we're gonna quickly run on uh, to just sort of who you are then at the minute. So. I don't know much about you. I don't think Carl knows. We've only done our research when it comes to IMDb and sort of like uh, a few YouTube interviews that I've seen about you. Um, well, but where did where did this first like where did Liam Regan become a independent filmmaker? So <clears throat> I think like uh, every person at my age, I'm 35. So I grew up in video shops, just renting films all the time, and. I remember always visiting the horror section of the video shop and getting goosebumps. Like I wasn't supposed to be in there at like six years old, but it like it felt really exciting. I grew um, a love for the horror genre and like franchises and sequels. And I grew up on stuff like Gremlins and Critters and Ghoulies and all these creature feature flicks. And then um, when I was 11 years old, uh, my mum uh, bought me um, an ex-rental copy of The Toxic Avenger Part 2. Um, now, I was familiar with Toxie through Toxic Crusaders because when I was five or six, it was on the uh, TV uh, same time as like Captain Planet and the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles, etc. Um, and we also were lucky enough to have Sky TV in the 90s and uh, Sky had a great channel called Bravo. And I remember um, the Sky magazine that used to come through the door every month. Um, it would always, well, no, one of the months had like a trauma season. And I remember uh, just four pages filled with these posters for films like Death Nazis Must Die or um, Demented Death Farm Massacre the Movie or, you know, Class of Newcomb High, for example. And I don't know, just something about the whole kind of, I mean, now, you know, they call it the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, I feel like independent film has been doing this for a long time, connecting films and having a theme running through them. And um, after I saw Toxic Avenger 2, it just completely spoke to me. I mean, this is something that has social commentary. Um, it's very uh, Looney Tunes. Um, in terms of the violence. And I also grew up on stuff like Bottom and a lot of Rick Mail and Ed Edmondson comedies. I was very much inspired by them. Um, so when I saw Toxic Avenger Part 2, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. Um, so I uh, studied film at college. Um, however, at college, I wasn't allowed to uh, make the kind of project I wanted to express. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's one thing I've noticed about, you know, uh, colleges and universities like, don't allow you to be an artist. I think when I so I, to... I studied, a, I went down a similar path with film, and yeah. it was I, I again I spoke to you before. I moved more into live production and vision mixing as such. Yeah. And when I was at college, it was the same thing. And I think that's what spoke to me about your original story. And is that art is so subjective that one person can love something and one person can not. And when you're in a, such an like an educational role as college or university, you're very much <laughs> it's your lecturers and whatever they say is goes. Um, so yeah, sorry to try to cut you off. I thought that's a very <laughs> it, yeah. 
No, completely, you know, and uh, it's kind of surprising in a way because you think that they'd be moving to moving uh, you towards be more creative, you know, come up with some original ideas. Now, I completely get it from a, from a college's standpoint that they wouldn't want to make a film about um, Wolf Hitler being stuck on Earth because he's a homosexual and because, like, you know, the church is so homophobic that he has to change his sexuality to get into heaven. So, I, you know, I had this idea called Confessions of Adolf. And, you know, Adolf Hitler was going to have this imaginary friend who's a clown. And that's kind of where the seeds of Banjo came from, in a way. Um, but, you okay. know, I didn't make... I didn't really, um, I didn't really work work on films for many years. I mean, I um, I used to party. I used to uh, go clubbing um, and all that kind of stuff. And I always felt like I always wanted to make films, but I was living week to week. So, uh, I became sober in two thousand nine, and then when I became sober, I just concentrated on wanting to make films. So by doing that, I just bought a shitload of. Um, like screenwriting books, for example, because that's one thing I couldn't get down is how do you get that uh, three-act structure? And it's probably the hardest thing now, you know, to even get it down. I mean, now I've got like a flow of what to do, but even starting out writing anything, you know. You understand sort of the premise of it now. I mean, we've got a few questions from viewers and people we know later on. Um, so I'm not going to jump into one of the questions right now because it is integral to what you've just said. But it's one of those cool. things where as like a, a filmmaker, it's to bridging the gap between right, I've got an idea for a film, um, how do I produce it, the technical standpoint, and then how do I go out into then and to put it into fruition and make a film? And it, it'll be great to get your perspective on that later. Yeah, um, it's good. that's good because that's one thing I would, I, and I would I would imagine most people wouldn't even know where to start on, on to make a film and things like that. So it's good that you took, like you say, you were partying and things like that. And I think that's what a lot of kids do nowadays. So, <laughs> and that does stop you from going on and doing things because that's a focus of your life. It's, you know, when you, like you say, you live week to week. Yeah. And 90% of the time, you, like when I was younger, I mean, I'm 33 now, and my wages, again, were the same. It were, have I got money to go out at the weekend and party with my friends? Rather, So it's good that you actually visioned that and then went, right, I'm going to change this and I'm going to go and do actually what I want to do. So it's, I, I actually commend that. And it's, yeah, a lot of people should do that. I wish I had done it when I was a bit younger, personally, and got where I wanted to be a bit quicker, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Look, I mean, drinking and everything is a rite of passage. I completely get it. I mean, I, you know, I, I was just a really bad binge drinker, you know, at the end of the day. And, um, but at the same time, I always knew I wanted to be creative, et cetera, et cetera. And like you say, you live week to week and you just kind of lose track of time and you realize, hang on a minute, what do I want? You know, I don't want to settle down and have, yeah. yeah personally, I don't want to settle down and have two kids. And, you know, I, I, I kind of like, I don't like arrogant or anything, but it's like, I want to be kind of selfish and just like, want to do right, you know? You, yeah, you, do what you, you want to do. Do yeah. you, you. What makes you happy? Yeah. yeah. Not the, what's the perceived dream of everybody else? You know, the picket fence, the two kids, the car, the, yeah. you, you know, if you don't want that, go out and get what I, I, I love that. That's my favorite thing up to you. Yeah, I do. It's genuinely my favorite thing. I love that. So Which, I'd it... say, sorry, I wish I'd have done it when I was younger, personally. You've just, uh... <laughs> you've inspired somebody. And I think that's what filmmaking yeah. is about as well. It's inspiring somebody to, to do something different. Um, so, I mean, even, even from my perspective, I'm a bit younger than you both, but I, I've, always aspire to create something um 
the same thing with these podcasts and these YouTube channels and everything that we do online. So I think I said to myself, and I've spoke to you about it as well, coming into 21, I want to create something. And whether that is going to be, you know, a five minute, you know, small independent documentary or just, I just want to make something to look back on. And I think that's why then when we, eventually when we talk about Banjo later, it's why that I think that now you've got something that you can look back on. And let's say, even if you made no more films now in 10 years time, you can sit there and go, I made this film. I went out and did this. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, as, uh, as much as uh, we're saying all the praise for it, that's <clears throat> a fucking fantastic I mean, thing to come from an independent filmmaker. I love that so much, and it, it breeds it breeds artistic people. I think it it makes you feel good as well. I mean, like I, I spoke about this on a podcast the other day. I, I do another channel as well. It's like where we do goofy stuff on on YouTube, and we got challenged to make a song and a music video within twenty four hours. Now it's the song's terrible, the music video is terrible, but actually going out and doing it. It was something that I'd always kind of wanted to do anyway. And even though it's terrible, it's something that I created and I can look back on and go, you know what? I've done that. And I experienced it because from an outside perspective, it all seems easy. You are in your head. You think, Oh, it's easy to do that. It's just doing this. And it's not, there's so much more that goes into everything on top of it. So then you can appreciate it more once you've tried to do it as well. And yeah, I, that stuff is, I, I encourage everybody to go out and just do, at least if for yourself, just do it for yourself, even if it goes nowhere. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, very good. So quickly segue yeah. on to then your experiences with trauma. Now, I've only just fell into that trap with with trauma and I feel like I've encased myself very quickly. I've always been a horror binger. I've always loved horror films and I've made, I've even tried to push this onto car recently, but so my first film was Toxie with, you know, uh, and I never had the comics. I've only just recently picked those up. I never even have the Playmates figures. I never watched the animated stuff, but then watching it now in sort of 2021, you can really appreciate the indie scene and what Lloyd's done over the past, what, 30, 40 years in his filmmaking, in his filmmaking career. How did then you sort of segue yourself and propel yourself into that trauma universe? And I, I briefly remember hearing you talk about whether it be on YouTube or a podcast of of you traveling over to New York and getting that invitation. Was Is that you as an independent person being like, right, okay, I, I need to do this. I'm going to go out there and set my expectations to be on these film sets. And was that before or after that you sort of um, took the sobriety? Was that mid sort of, or after your party phase, you're like, right, okay, I'm going to get my life in gear. I then want to go over to the States for a bit and try and show my expertise and get my foot in the door with the trauma entertainment. Yeah, pretty much. So, I mean, um, I quit drinking in 2009 and I, um, I did, a, I did the banjo short film in April, 2012. Um, and then around that time I was at the Prince Charles cinema in London. There was a trauma event. And um, I think they were showing, um, I think it was like Toxic Avenger, Class of Newcomb High, uh, back to back. And I think, oh yeah, Father's Day may have been in the middle of them, I think. I think there was three films. Anyway, um, Lloyd announced that they were remaking Class of Newcomb High, but with two female protagonists. Um, And I just knew when he said that, I need to uh, get over there. So, like, you know, time passes as it does. And it was like maybe July, August, and I saw that uh, on the trauma website there were, you know, um, wanting, you know, cast and crew shoot in Buffalo, Niagara. And I mean, I, I must have been, uh, what was I, 25, 26 at the time? Um, 
Wait, maybe I'm maybe we're younger. Anyway, um, <laughs> so I reached out to one of Lloyd, one of Lloyd's assistants, and be like, "Hey, you know, um, I'd love just to fly myself over and just work on the film." Now, at that point, I mean, you know, I've never travelled on my own before. Now, I, I, I've not a sheltered life at all, but you know, with the drinking and everything, you kind of like you don't really explore on your own. You're not really independent in yeah. a way. You're always kind of like you know, uh, latching onto whatever. So. This was like a big jump for me. So, you know, um, we organized it. I jumped on a plane um, by myself and went over there by myself, you know, me, you know, meeting someone that I've never met before, uh, Lloyd's assistant at the airport. It was all scary. And we, uh, there was like a hundred people staying in this abandoned funeral home in oh Buffalo, Niagara with like two showers. Um, and it was like exactly like the trauma documentaries, which shows, I mean, the best thing about the trauma documentaries is that it shows what uh, independent filmmaking is really about. Because, uh, you know, you, you see a lot of, um, I don't know, I, I think what I find filmmakers don't like to talk about the truths of independent filmmaking. And the grit, I the think down that, and dirty, the gritty of what it actually is. Which I think completely, but yeah, yeah, but like all, all aspects though, not just like uh, prepping and shooting, but the post production, and not just the post production, but when you sell your movie to a distributor and they completely screw okay. you over, you know, um, which we can get into later because I've got uh, some. Uh, I, I, I've know. got I've got it on the script about banjo. It's coming. You said no holds barred, so it's coming. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, when I worked on Return to Newfoundland High, it was probably, I mean, to me, that was my film school in a way. Yes, I went yep. to college. Yes, I went to university. Yes, I've made one short film. But working on a real independent film set uh, was film school. And now I listened to audio commentaries growing up by Eli Roth. I listened to audio commentaries like Kevin Smith, I, you know. And I always knew that I was never going to get a handout to make my passion project. And, I'm, you know... Yeah. I think there's a lot of filmmakers in the UK um, that think that they're going to get BFI funding for their first project. They think they're going to get this funding and blah, blah, blah. And the truth is, I mean, you know, I hope you do. I really hope you do. You know, uh, I'm not saying you won't, but I feel, um, you know, you've got to put your hand in your pocket, man. You know, yeah, that, really. that gold, it's that golden ticket. And I think it's, it's yeah. everybody in 21, everybody in 19, 20 wants to be an independent creative, whether that be, you know, podcast, YouTube, especially YouTube in the past four years, they want to create oh, films. Yeah. And it's one of those things now that uh, you're either got it or you're not, and you either go and get it or you don't. And it, nobody's going to come to you and give it. So no. as an no. independent no. creative, I think, it, I think it's so good that people will go out and get it. And what would be your advice then for an independent you know, creator in, in 21 now? Is it just to go out and get it or? No, I, I mean, to, to me, it's, um, I mean, if you want to be a creative, you know, my advice is make what you want to make. Don't look, don't follow trends. Don't see what's popular right now or anything like that. You've got to make something that you're going to be married to for the rest of your life. And you're not going to be able to yeah. divorce yourself from, because if you're, I mean, like I say, I mean, banjo for me is a, still an ongoing thing. Now I could have got tired of that, you know, and plus, you know, I think my advice is um, do something different as well. Like, don't like to me. I always like the idea of turning the convention on its head, right? Yeah. So, when, you know, whenever people talk about banjo, they they never mention it's a rape revenge movie, um, because I've turned the convention on its head where a woman rapes a guy and the guy goes crazy, right? Yeah. Um, 
And to me, I, I like to take the horror genre and just flip it on its head and do something a little different. Now, obviously, Banjo is a massive love letter to trauma as well. I, it's not original by any means, but I'm wearing my heart on my sleeve. I'm wearing my uh, interests on my sleeve. You know, there's loads of nods to so many uh, films in Banjo. So, I mean, my advice is for anyone is if you come up with an idea, be it a film, be it a podcast, be it a book, be it a screenplay, just do it and don't tell anyone about it. Just do it. Because I think um, now with social media, you know, um, giving us that dopamine fix, it's easier just to be like, hey, guys, I'm doing this and nothing comes of it. If you just do it and then come out with it or kind of like do it and then, uh, I don't know, do a Kickstarter and, you know, you've got all this good stuff, then you're going to be taken a lot more seriously. Um, yeah. I mean, look... I you know, I went from making one short film to making a feature. Now, I was green as hell when I, when I made Banjo, as you probably saw behind the scenes. I was kind of like, even though I've, I've worked on Return to Newcomb High, you know, being responsible for so many people and being, you know, all that on your shoulders, it, it's, it's really stressful. And every time I make a film, there'll be like, uh, you know, a month, maybe three months where I have like a, a breakdown. And it, and it just happens because... You care so much about the film that once you've been uh, in an environment with like, you know, 60, 70 other creatives that, you know, and then you've got, and then you've got to re uh, resort back to normal day. You have to go back to your day job and your night job. It's like, what the hell? Because it's just, you know, it's not the same. You've been doing, creatives. you've been doing this. You've been living and breathing what you want in your yeah. passion for yeah. so long. And then for you have to go back to work nine to five sucks. Yeah. And I think that's the, the, the reality for most people these days is that if you want to create something of that magnitude, then you got to grind for it. And yeah, I respect oh, the grind everybody oh. does. I always, you know, I always class myself as a working class filmmaker because I think everyone, when I started going to film festivals in 2010, you saw these people on stage introducing the films and that, and you're like, oh my God, they must be millionaires traveling around the world, you know, going to festival to festival, living the dream. But, the, you know, the, the truth is, is that they do have day jobs. They do work in these coffee shops. They do work in call centers, etc. And I just wish more people would be a bit more open and humble and honest about that because every time I introduce Banjo at a film festival, I always say to them, look, you know, I work in a call center, I work in an office. If I can do this, you can do this. And just, you know, bring it down to a level of like, you know, humbleness. Because I, I do think like there's also like this artsy fartsy pretentious nature of filmmaking. And at the end of the day, we're just making films, we're not saving lives. I mean, you know, it, it, we're entertaining people and that, they, you know, that may save lives like that, but we're not, you know, we're just, every, you know, every creative filmmaker I know who I'm friends with are all messed up in the head, including me. And you've got to, to actually like go through this, you know? I think, I think a lot of people think that to create a film, you've got to quit your job. You've got to have, you know, everything in the bank. You've got to, you know, you just got to have, what's the word? You just got to have the passion and the drive to do that nine to five and then do whatever it is on top as well. That might, eventually become something where you can drop that nine to five you know if it doesn't like i said earlier on you've gone out and you've created something you've followed your passion you followed your hobby you've you know whatever it is you can't just you know be a bit more realistic with it don't just drop your job and think i'm going to be a filmmaker so you know, I, I know so many people that do that they're like oh i'm going to quit my job i'm going to pursue filmmaking i'm like okay that's great but the, the issue is there is that when you've got all the time in the world, you don't know where to direct that time, right? Yeah. But if you work five, you know, five days a week, 
you can dedicate two days to script writing or two days to your film. You can yeah. ba- look, I can balance it. Me, I was prepping for banjo. I was working like 16, 16 and a half hour days, overtime days, or else I'd be working like maybe uh, 12 hours and adding hours afterwards, right? Just to save up for banjo. Like, banjo. you know, I'd have a banjo bank account. Banjo cost around 15 grand to make, which is like very, 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 very small for a movie, right? However, 15 grand's a lot of fucking money and it, it yeah. is a lot of money, <laughs> you know? I was um, looking at when so like, on the behind the scenes, I think the initial Kickstarter was five grand, wasn't it? I think that you said. Yeah, they, yeah, it was five grand because I was just, you know, under the impression of, oh, well, uh, Father's Day, which trauma distributed, cost 10 grand. So I'm like, well, you know, if I get five grand from Kickstarter, I can get five grand of my savings and there's a movie. But, you know, it's, it's very much different in Canada versus uh, England. So, you know. So we'll. we'll uh... <laughs> We'll move. We'll move on to talking about Bandulin because we, we, we've seen we've we've already started. We might as well need to go on. Um, so I'm all over the place with this. So I apologize. I'm no, like, no, that, that's, that's fine. It's, it's fine. It's the way sometimes that we the gallery happens. We normally we we normally have a script and then we deviate from the script all the time. But I think it makes good conversation. So it's absolutely fine. We've normally spoke about one thing for, on the script list at the end of a podcast, so I won't worry <laughs> about it. And we still somehow come out with at least an hour's worth of footage, so it's fine. Um, Forty minutes of it is Tom Holland. <laughs> The Tom Holland appreciation. <laughs> so we spoke quite a few challenges just then about banjo and how you sort of you know came across it, whether it be budget um, or, or directing, say a hundred odd people on set. Is there anything in particular that really challenged you then on set? Uh, whether that be sort of taking a cinematographer and being like, right, I, I, my vision is to shoot it this way. Um, the behind the scenes I mentioned to you today that there's some big characters in the behind the scenes, whether it be one person's vision wants it this way and one person wants it that way. So then the bottom line is it's your movie, right? So is there any particular yeah. sort of challenge that you faced during Banjo that you think, right, looking back at it now, I'd do this differently or as it being your first feature, look, I wanted to do this, this was my vision, it happened. Was that the case with Banjo or? Yeah, I'm, I'm a complete control freak when it comes to creating and um, making anything. I am really, really, you know, controlling. But I mean, I, I listen to ideas though. I also believe in, look, if it's my money at the end of the day, then I get the final say, you know, without sounding like a dickhead. You know, you need, you, you have, yeah, you can't have too many cooks in the um, the kitchen whatsoever. And I think that's the, with Banjo, you know, uh, yes, there were big characters. I mean, uh, the cinematographer, Damien Marta, who um, made uh, Book of the Dead, Esker Trilogy, um, uh, you know, he's also a filmmaker. So obviously, you know, uh, he was coming at it from his perspective, already making maybe two or three films before that, right? Uh, and then I'm there green as hell, knowing what I want to kind of put out there. But sometimes, you know, it's sometimes hard to, um, I guess, you know, there's always the power play on a film set, but there's also like, I had insecurity as well, very much so. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, I was second guessing myself a lot uh, through Banjo. Um, and the version that you guys have seen of Banjo is a very, very, very kind of like rushed to festival uh, cut of Banjo. Um, you know, the original assembly cut of Banjo is around like two and a half hours long. There were a lot of things that were left in the cut you've seen that I would, that I have already removed for the director <laughs> that I really hate, you know, really hate. But then I put okay. loads of like really gnarly 
nasty stuff back in. Um, the new, like, like the real ending is in now because the version you've seen, the camera pulls back and it's fucking in credits. In the director's cut, Ronnie goes to Sawyer and Dietz's house at Christmas and, you know, Dietz's face Flips melts down it. and Sawyer gets his throat cut, you know. Spoiler. What? <laughs> so <laughs> we're blowing Carl's mind because I think Chore's end of the behind the scenes, the, the ending segue to that, it shows you some of the Christmas scenes, which I don't think Carl's actually quite got to just yet. So we're spoiling a little I, bit for him. But I think oh, the same thing as me, when, um, when we're coming yeah, to just... the physical media, the director's cut, like, I'm so hyped to watch it because then knowing nice. you and knowing what we've seen already, the, the, the festival cut, it's going to be such a different, like, a different film for me then to re-watch it in the director's cut. Oh, completely different film for, for sure. And, you know, uh, it's, um, so, I mean, you know, there was... I mean, I respect and I love everybody that worked on Banjo. Let me just get that uh, out of the bag right now. And I think back then, you know, I, I was completely, I think mean, it was like, what, six, seven years ago we filmed that. So I was very much, I, I was a very different person than I am today. Yeah. Um, and, you know, me and Damien did clash. But at the same time, it's like, you know, um, he's made films before. So obviously he's seen it from his perspective, which makes perfect sense, where I've only ever made a short film before. So it was kind of, and you know, Damien was amazing as Ronnie. And, you know, let's not forget, Damien played Ronnie. He was the DP and he was the editor. Okay. So um, obviously he was wearing so many hats. So when it came to kind of like, you know, uh, because we got picked up at Fright Fest. In fact, you know, I think I'm jumping about here. Like, but it played Cannes in 2015 and it was yeah. like the worst market screening ever. I mean, <laughs> People say to you, right, when you go to Cannes and you film plays, don't go to a market screening because it's just full of business people. They don't care about okay. films. All they care about is, okay, can I buy this film, right? But right. no, I'm like, hey, I'm in Cannes. You know, I want to watch my film with an audience. Now, the issue is, is the version of Banjo at Cannes was 107 minutes long and the sound design wasn't finished. So already you've got a horror comedy that should not be 107 minutes. That's just arrogant, okay? Um, so, you know, I I, I that's one of, one of Kevin Smith's key, key words, that. Be arrogant. That? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, look, I mean, I was sat at the back and no one re were reacting to any of the jokes on screen. People were already leaving and I just wanted to die inside. In fact, it must have got to like 45, 50 minutes into the film and I left the cinema and I was just in the streets of Cannes just crying. I, I just knew that, like, you know, the dream was over in a way. And then when I came back to the uh, the Cannes screening, when people were coming out, people were coming up to me and saying some, like, nice things, but very honest, like um, the head of Universal uh, Home Video in the UK, Mike Hewitt, who also who, who now works at Arrow. Um, uh, uh, Big old power uh, yeah, yeah, Arrow's great. Uh, you know, he actually said to me, look, you've got some great ideas in there. You've got that nice crane shot, etc. But we've got issues with the makeup. We've got issues with the grade, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, my big thing, what my big take home from that was uh, Fryfest passed on the film uh, then and there. And that killed me because I was hoping for my movie to have its world premiere Frightfest. It's every genre filmmaker's dream. Yeah. So I, um, so I Skyped with the editor whilst I were in Cannes saying, it's shit remove this remove that let's try and make it 80 minutes whatever anyway he did a fast turnaround of the edit and then when i get home there was like five days left to submit to fright fest oh, he did get the sound design 
So I essentially emailed Ian, one of the Fright Fest programmers who saw Banjo at Cannes, who passed on it. I said, hi, Ian, uh, it's Liam again. Um, I took your advice on board. Now, look, I've recut the movie. Um, would you be able just to be kind enough to give it one last shot? Okay. And he says, look, Liam, um, I don't really have time to watch this, but I can pass it on to somebody else that, that can, who I trust. I'm like, yeah, go for it. So he did. And, you know, we actually got accepted based on me putting out 20, 25 minutes or Damien putting out 20, 25 minutes. But at the same time, it was such a rush job. Um, in hindsight, I wish I waited a year. Shot in summer 2014. It premiered 2015, Leicester Square. I just like to drop that in there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, flex. Just a cheeky yeah, flex. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, um, you know, I, I should have waited a year. And but I think back then it was kind of like, oh, no, you know, I, I didn't really understand. I mean, you know, I've shot, uh, I've shot my newest movie uh, last January. And, you know, we still need to do reshoots. But, you know, we wrapped at the end of January and then coronavirus happened. And instead of being able to do uh, reshoots last September or whatever, you know, we're now in, what, February the following year, and we're still trying to schedule the reshoots to finish the movie. This is the um, thing. We, we, started uh, so... a, uh, we started a film podcast at the wrong time. Um, I'd love to be sat in a bar with a nice JD or, or a Coke um, and just having yeah, a, 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 a chit-chat, and it'd make a, different, yeah, a whole different environment. environment. So, yeah. Completely, you know. But, you know, it's to me, you know, I've learned that there's no rush when it comes to making films or creating something. There's really no rush. It's always best just to get it right the first time, which is why I'm not stressing as much this time. Because yeah. we do have 85% of the film in the can, as they used to say, you know, as in like it, we've got 85% of the film. But there's just scenes that I want to reshoot and there's some things I kind of want to... Um, uh, you know, pick up some you know exteriors and maybe change the opening a bit. Um, but yeah, like, sorry, what was the original question? <laughs> Where was it? Uh, um, I can't I, remember. I, uh, it was. It, I think we were jumping jumping on. Well, the, it was the next one was going to lead into the funding side of it. So I mean, that's a, a nice segue, regardless to what we were saying then. But so if I think the moral of that what, story is though, from what you were just saying, is take your time. Like obviously, you, you learn from experience the first time around with oh, yeah. banjo, and uh, you know you rushed it and you didn't quite get the version of the film that you wanted. But it did well. But then this time around, you've learned to just take your time and always make sure the finish, the first cut is the finished cut. Is essentially what yeah. I'm trying to say. I mean, you know, if I'm being honest, I've made no money on Banjo. The only money I've made on Banjo is selling T-shirts, if I'm being completely transparent, yeah. you know. I mean, that, that was um, one of the questions, was the funding side of it. Like, did... I, I'm completely naive, and I think we both are, to, to what happens after you've made the film. I mean, as much as I know, I've just read from Kevin Smith's books and, and, and looked online and stuff, but you mentioned them with cans, like... Is it someone then? Someone's going to pick it up, and you've got to obviously sell the movie to that you no know, that person, that production house, or, or whatnot. Did I mean that? That's the hope. Yeah, and the hope is sales agent picks it up. You get an advanced up front, and then they'll sell it to different territories. So like Germany is a territory, France is a territory, etc. Right? That's that's normally what happens. We can. I mean, the, 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 I love Kevin Smith. However, Kevin Smith was in the right place at the right time in the mid nineties with the Tarantinos and the Rodriguez and this nice little creative hub. And you had a Weinstein to fund your films. And Miramax, yeah. Weinstein, and then... Yeah, no, but the problem is now the whole model is changed because of, um, you know, internet piracy and torrenting. Films aren't worth... Like, it's just like music. They're not worth anything anymore. anymore like, yeah. a band right now will... Don't make... A band doesn't make money from selling records. A band makes money by touring and selling merchandise. Merch. And it's just the same thing kind of filmmaker. I mean, I was... Um, 
No, with Banjo, you know, before Fright Fest, I was sending the trailer to loads of distributors and sales agents after Cannes because I got loads of business cards in Cannes and I sent them the teaser trailer and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the reaction I was getting back from people were like very, very, very lukewarm, if not freezing. Um, like, no one wanted to put out the film. Uh, and Trauma, obviously, you know, with Lloyd uh, being like my, uh, you know, mentor and a friend, Trauma was always an option, but Lloyd was very honest with me and said, uh, Liam, Trauma would love to put out Banjo, but so you know, you're probably not going to make any money because of the market. Um, you know, just one question I had about it with the, that was about Lloyd, that you were in with that crowd. And again, sorry yeah. to cut you off. It, it was, was that an option, but. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, Banjo, in hindsight, knowing what I know now, um, I would have um, had trauma distribute Banjo. I mean, why wouldn't I? I mean, um, you know, instead, this uh, there's a um, sales agent in Arizona called uh, Maxim Media picked up the movie and they fed me a lot of lies and um, it put me in a really bad state of depression in um, late 2016. Uh, you know, I, and seriously man like so they promised me the only reason i went with maxim media midnight releasing is one they promised me walmart now walmart like in the uk tesco supermarkets yeah it's the only place to really get dvds as well as hmv and the online retailers right so i'm like look if i can get my film in walmart that's a brand new audience yada 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 right so they promised me that two they promised me that it was going to be uncut and three, they promised me that they would promote it, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, so one, um, I after I signed the contract, they said, uh, Liam, we're not putting it in Walmart anymore. We're just going to dump it on Amazon um, disc on demand or made on demand. That's essentially, if you order from Amazon Banjo, it'll be a DVDR that Amazon will create then and there so they don't have to have, like, you know, a stock, stock of the yeah. film. Yeah. To censor the film for the digital outlets which i was like my god um that really killed me so I mean, as like a, as like... an independent creative then you've gone yeah. through all the rigmarole of the hassle and vision of yeah. other people then to be, able to, distribute to not be able to see it in yeah, a distribution company then, then go oh no you know, they the, the cut out the penis mutilation scene which is the whole crux of the fucking film and um, i'm like carl's favorite scene then... i think <laughs> when i when I That's first, great. I wasn't expecting it at all. And then I was like, oh my God, what is going on here? And I, I love a, a good gory section. So I, I was like, yes, he's done me proud there. Because that way I was, and I was eating a tuna sandwich at the same time. And that didn't quite. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, <laughs> but yeah. So, so but the third, the main thing is that they changed the title of the movie, which I was completely against at the time. Now, okay. obviously, it played festivals and it won awards, and you know, it's you know, not to name drop, blah blah blah, but I will anyway. It's played all over. It's played Japan. It's played Germany. It's played France. It's played Switzerland. It's played um, where else have I been with it? Brussels. It's played all over the world. You know, it played. Um, New York, it played Kansas City, it played Atlanta, Georgia, it played all these awesome places, right? That I was able to travel to, excuse me, and screen the film. So they changed the title of the movie and they wanted to call it something like really, really, really fucking, what did they want to call it? Just something really generic. Like, so that didn't, uh, didn't hold true to the film, I guess. Like, it was like something like Office Massacre or, um, something and i'm like i'm like what? fuck that i mean as much as, as much as we love a beeline movie on 
on the Galleria podcast, Office Massacre does sound a little bit. Uh, I mean, at that point, it's one of those five pound Walmart specials. Like, so I mean, I'm oh. glad that it didn't change to that. I mean, I mean, look, I mean, I had to come up with a title, so I'm like racking my brain because I never wanted to change it. Um, and then I'm like, well, my bloody Valentine, my bloody banjo, bloody is like a Yorkshire, uh, you know, uh, saying, yeah. and you know, bloody, you know, the double meaning of bloody. And then, yeah. they're, and then they're like, no, let's call it bloody banjo. Now, when I hear bloody banjo, I feel like a, a five dollar Walmart DVD. They put <laughs> my bloody banjo on there. It's it gives it a bit. It of gives the bit you know? of a, a pizzazz. Yeah, I get where you're coming and, from I'm on that. Really, I'm really anal when it comes to the finer details. Like I am like ask any editor that's worked with me, they'll know like I will fucking like to the frame or to the colour or whatever. So my bloody banjo and, and you know what? I've warmed to that title now. Like you know, I'll say banjo for short, but I always try and say my bloody banjo. Uh just because I've learned from Lloyd Kaufman out to Mac yeah. on movies, so you know. I think that we've never I've never known anything different. I've never known anything different other than banjo or my bloody banjo. So, I mean, to, to me now, it's a surprise to you saying that a, a distribution company awesome. essentially said, let's change it to something completely out of the ordinary, which again doesn't make oh, sense. For a, yeah, yeah. But that just goes to show that these big conglomerate companies like that, they haven't got a clue what they're doing or, you know, I mean, obviously they sell the films, or they wouldn't be doing it. They, they, it clearly makes them a profit, or they wouldn't be doing it. But... You know, off, if I saw Office Massacre on the shelf, then, um, you know, that's, the, to me, the kind of film that you watch for a laugh, you know, when you're on YouTube and you're searching, you know, like, what did I send you the other day? The the Wrestlers versus Zombies film, you know, where it's just got that generic title and it's like, whereas my bloody banjo or banjo is a bit more intriguing and it makes yeah. you want to know more you know, and then obviously, like you said, I didn't even think about the double meaning of bloody and being a Yorkshire, a phrase and things like that, and being a Yorkshire lad, you said. Like, I didn't even think about that. I mean, it makes so much more sense and that it's got a deeper meaning than in than Office Massacre. I, yeah, yeah I completely. I mean, look, I, I, I get it. I mean, I get it. They want to sell it to the layman because at the end of the day, horror fans and genre fans don't make the money. It's the person that goes to Tesco that wants to buy the uh, the, the Danny... Um, who's the guy in the gangster films? Danny... Um... Danny, Danny, Danny Dyer. Danny Dyer. Danny Dyer. <laughs> yeah, so what they do is pick up the Danny Dyer DVD or whatever, or the Jason Statham DVD, the yeah. carton of milk, the loaf of bread. That's that's where the money is, believe it or yeah. not. It's not the horror fans. It's the actual, um, you know, think, trying to make it more mainstream. It's now, one of those look, things if Maxine, you're in that genre. Yeah. yeah. I've Completely. I've been there many a times in that bargain bin in the Asda and things like that. I've bought I bought a zombie from there, Hercules in New mm -hmm. York, you know, all them kind of films. You see it and you're like, hang on a minute, what's this? This is I, my personal opinion is is I buy it because it looks terrible. So then you want to watch it to see if it actually is. I think that's how I found Hobo with a shotgun, personally. <laughs> and I picked it up and went this. That title for me alone, uh, yeah, I'm buying that, and it and turns out it's incredible. Well, it turns out they're incredible films, great films. Like Oz sometimes the, the was... worst films with the worst titles sometimes become the best films. And like, yeah, I, I can think of the, again. You see from my Instagram and stuff. I collect so much physical media 
Like, mm-hmm. I will just buy a Blu-ray or a DVD or a film or, or a figure or anything just because it looks cool. And then it entraps yeah. you into that genre. And it's very much how I became, I guess, a Toxie fan. Like, I, I first posted posted Toxie and then I was like, oh my God, like, I'm really enjoying this. I had no idea about trauma. And then again, a mutual friend put me onto yourself, which is the, the kind of way into the trauma universe. And now I'd say like, I'm, I'm kind of like, I am hooked in a sense. Like I really enjoy the films. I recently just watched Tromeo and Juliet and I've got Newcomb High and number two and three to come. So it's one of the things where you will oftentimes find films in bargain bins that will then live the test of time and you will forever enjoy that series or that Vogue genre of film. Well, believe it or not, and I only learned this maybe 10 years ago, but the films in the bargain bins are the ones I've actually sold the most. Right. Because they're able to discount them down. Now you'd think it'd be the opposite. No. So in other words, if a, a title sold X amount of units uh, to sell the rest of them, they'll mark them down. Mark them down. Yeah. Everything else will be sent back to the warehouse, you know, yeah. and then they'll be sent to, you know, I don't know, I don't know what they do with the DVDs that don't get sold. But no, I, I was really shocked to understand the fact that the films in the bargain bins are the ones that sell the most, which is kind of weird. When I say sell the most, I'm talking about like, you know, yeah. Um, it's the more titles, units you, the more the more units you order, the the cheaper price you get it at. So it happens with, I work at Game, for instance. So it happens yeah. with us. So, you know, your bigger titles, like your Last of Us's and things like that, you'll notice that they're always on sale because they're the biggest selling game of the year. Whereas the more niche titles, what everybody loves... Yeah. will always be the ones that stay high in price, like your, your Monster Hunters and stuff like that, for instance. I know it's a movie podcast, but they'll stay high because they've got a good cult following, but they don't sell the hundreds and thousands of copies like your Call of Duties and your stuff like that. They're the ones that sell loads, so you order more and you get them at a cheaper price, simple as. And it makes sense. Yeah. So, so jumping... not completely, completely does. I mean, look, it's, it's like now with the video market, you've got these boutique video labels like Arrow, Eureka, like H8 Films, all these great boutique video labels that the fan like me, for example, will pay over the odds for to have like a, you know, a, you know, a um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, no, Clutch's Edition or whatever, right? You know, we'll pay over the odds. Um, and <clears throat> that's where I find that's where the money is and that's where i'm trying to rebrand everything i so i'm opening up my self-distribution company near the end of the year fuse films you know or whatever to self-distribute like banjo and eating miss campbell eventually in the uk territory but i can still sell eating miss campbell for example to international territories and still make money plan because you know i get these sales reports every six months from maxim media tell me Oh, Liam, you've made, sorry, My Bloody Banjo's made 20 grand, for example, right? However, we've spent 25 grand on, um, on processing fees, on marketing and like expenses, right? <coughs> Excuse me. And it's fully bullshit. So what these companies do, it's going to be passionate now. What these companies do. <laughs> it's fine. They exploit, yeah, they exploit first time independent filmmakers by promising them the, the world. The world. And because we're nice. Yeah, and what? Yeah, one thing, right? When you, the one thing they don't teach you is how to sign a uh, a distribution agreement. They don't teach you how to sign to a sales agent because these sales agents and these distributors just out to fuck you at the end of the day. So you know, it's a smack in the face to see how much banjo's made them. And it's smack in the face that it's not even not none of it's trickled down to me whatsoever. Yeah. To yeah. see how much then lands you know, in your bank account at the end of the day is and it's your project. Zero. Is... There is zero. 
Yeah. And, and you know, so, it's disgraceful. The, the thing with it's that is... It's not about money, but... It is. I mean, at the end of the day, so people say it's not about money, but then at the end of the day, like people always say, I'd hate to be rich and blah, 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 blah. But money does make the world go around at the end of the day, and everybody is a bit happier when you've got a bit more money in your bank. I mean, I I feel a lot happier when I've got a bit of extra spare cash in bank than when I've, when I've got no cash in bank, you know. Yeah. I'm not saying it's always all about the money, but at some point it does come down to the money. And, when you spent so much on that project and you're not getting anything back and somebody else is reaping the benefits for your work, that it's like exactly. it's like going to work for an hour and you doing all the work for a full day and then someone else getting paid for it and you've got paid nothing. You know, yeah. you have to think of it like that. And it's it's ridiculous, in my opinion. And colleges should teach that stuff, in my opinion. Yeah, it's it's like they it's like they just go, here's how to make a film, now go and get robbed by the world. You know, yeah, kind of. It segues well, onto what I was looking at with, um, again Yorkshire, um, with a bank called While She Sleeps, and I, I imagine we all know who Sleeps are, but they did a, a very, a very similar thing. Was I think they were with Sony or Warner Brothers Entertainment, one of the two. Again, not to, not to dismantle their names, but they, they were signed to a label as such, and then I, I know sort of last year or the last two, three years, they've gone self, uh, self distribution, and they've focused more on like you say merchandise and then artwork, and now they've brought a society out where you can join, you pay a fee, and you'll get something for it. Is that what you'd, you'd like to see them? Is it for, for refusing to, to bring out? It's building about a core audience. And then I think that's the way I see now independence. And for example, trauma is a, a brilliant subject for that, to bring these films and what everybody knows and loves. And it's created a core audience to then branch out to them rather than, again, focusing it on just a, a broader audience, having it sell in Tesco, HMV, you know, vice versa. It, again, is that what refusers wanting to do? Or is that what you yourself wanting to do in the future? Is, is yeah, just have that completely. sector? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want my, um, I mean, there's many of my fellow filmmaking friends that do, you know, uh, have their films for sale in Tesco and Asda, and that's fantastic. But, you know, I came to the realization that the kind of film I make, you know, isn't going to sell in Tesco and Asda, nor do I want to, because it's not that audience, right? Yeah. So to me, it's all, independent filmmaking to me now is all about just taking back control and uh, self-distributing in your own domestic territory. And what I mean is if you're an American filmmaker, maybe because America is so vast, maybe cut a good deal with like trauma, for example. Um, but also you're right. It's because I signed Banjo to Maxim Media for 10 years. I signed a 10 year license, which is just sickening to even think about. Um, I had to buy back my own UK rights to the movie. So oh, just to oh. sell it. Yeah, and so, it, you know, and that, you know, that that itself costs like maybe two and a half grand. So already I'm like, so I've not I've not made a return on the 15 to 20 grand that I've used of my own savings, my life savings to make banjo, right? So no return there. So when there's no return there, where is the, um, you know, where's the energy to make a second movie? The, 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 the passion only takes you so far. Like passion will oh, make I mean, you creative, I, I, but then again, like Carl said, that sometimes that the dopamine hit for money needs to be there, and, and it's critical at times then to create a film with with a budget. So, well, especially when you've burnt, like you say, you've burnt through your life savings and things like that, and then there's no more money to make banjo two. You know, that you're relying on that money from banjo one to make banjo two. You know, it, 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 you need to see a return. To, yes. to carry on so and when you're not seeing that return like like you say then now you're stuck in a place where well i can't even go and make what i want to make because i'm not making a return so back to the nine to five it is to save again to you know to oh, go yeah. str through the struggle and i bet it's heartbreaking it is when does the if you don't mind me asking when do you when does the 
Maximedia contract end, if you don't mind me asking? Do you say 10 years? 2026, 2025. No, oh, God. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I mean, look, let's be honest with you. You know, uh, when a film's 10, 15, 20 years old, unless it's like something big, it's dead. I mean, no one wants to do anything with it. But I have the UK rights to Banjo, which means I can self-distribute a, uh, a Blu-ray special edition with a slipcase and all those really nice things and the extras and you name it, right? And I can sell that worldwide. Because, you know, what stops you from, uh, I mean, I've already got all the domain names. What stops me from selling it to someone in America? There isn't. Yeah, you know, I can do no. that. Um, that's, to me, that's the way to do it. Now, with the, um, with the new film, you know, I cut a great deal with Troma, where they've given me a bit of money up front. They've got the North American rights, but I own the rights to all the other territories, meaning that okay. uh, I can self-distribute in the UK, which I think is probably going to be the smartest idea, just to make money, make a return, um, and then sell it to maybe Germany, sell it to France, once it does its film festival run. Would that so, be on I mean, um, this... the trauma? Uh, is it like they've got their own Netflix service? Something I mean, I've seen that loads have been pushing that on the on Twitter. Um, they're on like on demand. Would that be on there, or is that going to be? Is it going to be a sort of a pay gate, or would it be a distribution first, and then eventually it'll be on to the uh, the on demand segment? Yeah. So um, the the plan is for you, Miss Campbell, once cinemas reopen and film festivals like yada yada. So when they do, when it does the film festival circuit. It'll then play limited dates in New York and LA because Troma um, is able to get their like in-house because this film is also produced by Lloyd. It's not just a Troma pickup. Lloyd's actually produced this movie as well. Um, so it'll have a limited engagement in New York and LA. Then it'll have a Blu-ray release and then it'll be on Troma now. More than likely, there'll probably be a pay window uh, like they've done with Mutant Blast, uh, which is like another like Troma in-house production uh, and Return to Newcomb High Volume 2, etc. Um, but like you again, like weird, weird flex, Liam. Just flex that uh, that trauma volume two appearance cameo. <laughs> oh, oh, flex! Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, Look, I'd be uh, flexing I'm... all the way through this podcast if I were him personally. <laughs> 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 I wanted to ask: Are you going to be making a, like a collector's edition of Banjo? Because if there's a Ronnie figure coming, then count me hundred percent in. Because <laughs> Ronnie's quality. I, 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 it's funny you say that because I've already been in touch with like you know how much it costs to make action figures. You know the four inch light action figures, yeah. like the uh, the old Star Wars action figures. I mean you know the three D print them. You know they're a lot of money. You know and um, when I do the Kickstarter later this year to finish eating Miss Campbell, for example, um, we will have like a, a banjo soundtrack. We'll have banjo VHS. We'll have banjo Blu-ray. We'll have um, maybe a, a Ronnie and Miss Campbell action figure, but. They're a lot of money to make. I mean, you know, uh, if, if I wanted to buy 20 uh, Ronnie action figures, I think they cost me something like £50 a piece, um, which means I'd have to mark that up to maybe 65 or something to make a return, yeah. like I say. Um, but, you know, I could number them, make them limited. So, I mean, there's there's always possibilities with it. Yeah, but, the market's um, there sometimes with that as well. Like, I mean, yeah, I watched yeah. the film yesterday and I, I dropped 65 on a Ronnie pick on a Ronnie action figure like so some, yeah some market <laughs> information there from two, from two filmers but it, so. it's the same thing with like the the super seven they did a a toxi release not long ago and and that figure now even the glow in the dark figure like it, i think it retailed at 65 pound and i think even on ebay such now that the toxi figures sort of topping 85 90 pounds so it again it, it's once it's tied with trauma i think it's also got that kind of it's got that fan base that comes with it uh we'll, which will spend mm. the you know x amount on the figures so as much as like a physical collector like I am, I'm like, do it. Come on. <laughs> like, I'd love to see that. So, yeah. 
I'm, I'm completely considering it. Seriously, I mean, we're, we're right now just putting the finishing touches on the director, Scott Banjo as we speak. In fact, after, I think maybe later on this afternoon, I have a meeting with the editor to just to like, just go through the final notes. Then it goes to a sound designer. We've got a brand new soundtrack on Banjo with some really awesome bands. Um, and then like the Blu-ray release will have the director's cut, it'll have the festival cut, it'll have that documentary once it's finished, it'll have deleted scenes, outtakes, all that kind of good stuff. Like everything that I want to see in a film, audio commentaries, all that kind of good so stuff. So a, a very similar thing to like Arrow Distribution, how they do stuff like, um, even even Lloyd's uh, like Toxic Avenger, like I've watched most of the special features that are on, you know, on the Blu-ray from that, including the audio commentaries and, and the deleted oh, stuff, yeah. I guess. Now that to me, like I... Uh, Carl sits on the fence with it a little bit. He'd rather watch the the major flick with it. But sometimes when you get into that series, I'd I'd love to sit down and and, and deep dive into listening to somebody talk about it. And I, I, yeah. I'm going to rope Carl into eventually doing the audio commentary of Toxic Avenger. So uh, we'll, we'll see how well that goes. But you see, I'm very much the the average cinema triple A movie. So uh, he made me watch Toxic Avenger and Banjo this week. I'm not too into the whole indie scene of movies. I mean, me personally, I go to the for the bright lights and you know just the yeah. the but the event. I, you want to go the, the event, event of it? Yeah, the event. But the I'll be honest with you, a hundred percent. And I'm not just because you're on it. I sat down and I said to Ash earlier on, Toxic Avenger. I think was a bit with the age of the film. I was a bit like. You know, it was it was good. I enjoyed it, but Banjo, I I found myself I couldn't stop watching it. I cared about the characters. I cared, you know, Ronnie. I I think he's my spirit animal personally. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Mister Sawyer, I wanted to smash his face in. So you know, you did such a good job of, and the actors did such a good job of making you you know like dislike the characters and how you spoke. The story were incredible. The goal, like I say, it put me off my tuna sandwich. So. All in all, it's roped me into the you know into the indie scene of films a little bit, which is you know a great thing. Don't all, like I said to Ash, don't always write something off just because you don't think you're into it because you never know until you've actually sat down and watched it. You know, yeah, so. absolutely. That means a lot because the, you know for a long time I really couldn't watch Banjo ever again. Like I really hated the film once it got leaked online and I got fucked on the distribution deal you know i like i say i went through a really bad depression pit for a good three four years and the only way to come out of that was to make another film and um, this new film i'm making uh, eating miss campbell is essentially banjo too because this, this is what i was saying it, one okay. of the questions that i had for you is yeah. there is there a chance for this sequel because uh, again behind the scenes view you mentioned the banjo too making room for uh, for daddy um is that going to be a a new thing or are we seeing a complete separate sort of um like i say genre as such but are we going to keep uh, ronnie back in films or are we going to see those characters come back in future episodes maybe again banjo too i mean so eating miss campbell is essentially banjo too right okay is what I'm saying. I'm so int- we've already found in- Banjo 2. Is that but an exclusive? Without... <laughs> yeah, well, I've not mentioned it. But exclusive to the gallery. I've not really said anything. Like, but so, I mean, ban- I knew if I were going to make a Banjo 2, it'd make no money because Banjo made no money. But no one would yeah. really kind of like, you know. But if I made another film called something else, but it but was also Banjo 2 at the same time, because it continues after with the same characters, but it's not. See, Sequel would normally concentrate on the protagonists, right? Oh, yes. I concentrate on the bad guys. Guys. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, um, but it follows. So, on, and there's, re- there's references to um, 
I mean, uh, sex, let me get it. I, I mean, oh, we're getting some exclusives here. This is the thing, one of the questions I was going to speak to Leo about just then was that the references that we see inside of um, inside of Banjo with the references to Toxie and Tromy. I don't know if you noticed that, Carl. There is certain different scenes. No, in, yeah, I noticed. Uh, I, I, for I example, like... I, th I think Clyde had a, had a, a toxic badge on something on his yes. backpack. He had a cup. There were stickers like uh, there was trauma, trauma stickers, stickers everywhere. Yeah, I saw them. I so I mean, Clyde, uh, Clyde also returns in uh, Eating Miss Campbell. This time, uh, Sawyer and Clyde are best friends. Where in the first one, you know, Clyde blew his brains out, but now he's back alive. Uh, so I mean, in in the new so film, we've got like a Ronnie cereal box, you know, as a reference, Purple Ronnie. We've also. Uh... Oh my God! Excuse for reams for less mask. Yeah, so that's like a uh, you know this is what kind of happens after banjo spoilers. Um... Oh my God! Getting exclusives oh. on the gallery podcast. Exclusive <laughs> Peltzer as well. Oh, I God. I swear I know Peltzer from somewhere. The actor. Where is he from? As in, is he from? Like, uh... In the UK, where was it? Where does he grow up? Because I, I can't. I, I was sat looking at him, and I, was like, I know that face from somewhere, but I can't. I, I IMD beat him, and there were no films that I'd ever seen him in before. So now, and every time I see his face, it's so familiar, and I just can't. Yeah, I mean, he lives in Reading right now. I, I don't know him then, but it's just <laughs> something about his face. It's so I don't know. It's it was weird. It worked. And you even said the same, didn't you, so, Ash, to be fair? He's on the um, the, the cover art of Banjo. Um, his face looks so familiar compared like It's something I've seen in film or like whether it's just a, an artwork or a graphic novel or something or, or just a, a, somewhere in film. I've, it, I felt like I saw that character and I don't know why. It was a very strange experience well, when Carl went, oh, I think I know him too. Well, I mean, when I first saw James, when I saw first saw a picture of James, I'm like, this guy looks like um, uh, the guy from Basket Case. Kind of a movie, right? Have you guys seen Basket Case? Yeah, I, I original like four years ago, five years ago, probably. Yeah, so I'm... the lead guy with the big black hair and that, you know, I'm like, oh, he looks like that guy. So I cast him for Banjo, and I'm like, wow, this guy can act. What are the odds? And um, and he, you know, he's great. He's brilliant. He he went through a lot. James Hamer Martin, and you know, we we talk every day. You know, that's another thing about making films. You become best friends with everybody. You know, you create that like, bond and that relationship. Oh yeah. So by awesome. So by that news article that you've just shown us, that exclusive on the Galleria podcast. Thank you for that. I'm guessing he's not making a appearance in number two. As in in Miss Campbell, he does. Yeah. I mean, the actor does. Okay, but... but I'm not. I'm also not ruling out that. I'm also not ruling out that Peltzer and Ronnie are in it as well. So, oh God, <laughs> the suspense sitting, sitting on his edge of the seat. <laughs> so we're, we're going to slowly wrap things up because we're going over an hour mark that we normally like keep things at. Um, but I've got a few oh. questions for you. Um, a couple of viewers have, have mentioned these. We got a um a question here from M. Hundred uh, things we learned about podcasts uh, or filming podcasts. Sorry, and his question is: What's the maddest thing you've done to bring costs down without abandoning your vision or integrity for a project? Oof, that's a good question. Yeah, no, I, so, I, I thought instance, this as have well. You ever put a bed sheet on the window, like you know. <laughs> oh, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, look, I recycled loads of props and uh, costumes from Banjo for the new movie. Um, so I guess you could say I did that. And what else did I do? I um, 
You know, I don't believe in skimping on production value, though. That's one okay. thing. To me, where the money should go is like art direction and how the film is going to look and the lighting, etc. I always like to create like brands for my own films and that. But um, that's a lucky thing making a, a sequel in a way is you can you know reuse reuse things props and stuff yeah so i mean yeah so i I guess um how else to keep costs down it's it's so hard i mean because you've got to pay people as well right yeah the first movie people yeah the the first movie people do your favors right movie not so much and you (laughs) want to pay well you know i mean the other person that doesn't get paid is the director because it's his film anyway um but um down to me um got to kind of get people on the same uh platform as you to understand look there's no money in making this chance that it may uh, gain uh, cult status and if it gains cult status then that's immortality right you'll get to live forever yeah. you can die and leave something behind that could entertain uh, generations live the, yeah. test, live, live the test of time <laughs> That's the payment yeah. right there. That's the payment. That's better um, than money. Another very broad, very broad question. So feel free to uh, to summarize it in as short little words as you can. Uh, but it says, how did you cross the line from I've got an idea to actually putting the wheels in motion in creating the film? So did you then one day, obviously, we know how you uh, talked about creating Banjo and the idea for Banjo, but where did it, where did it come from? And no, what are the wheels in motion that you took at the time to, to eventually put it into being a film? When I did the short film, I was the cameraman, I was the editor, I wore every single hat. When we did the short film, there was at least three people in the crew, you know, um, interchanging things. And um, we hired friends um, to be the actors, etc. So um, I just knew that I needed to make a short film. So I bought my camera. I bought a lot of film equipment, which you should never do. You should hire film equipment. Um, so, you know, it's... Um, and also when it came to the movie, like... The only reason why there's a Banjo movie is because I thought it was such an absurd idea to make a movie out of the short film. Make a movie about a guy who snaps his penis. I mean, what, how could you make a 90-minute film? Now, what I did was I put a Facebook status up maybe in like 20, 2012, early 2013, and I put Banjo uh, colon the movie face. The reaction that got where people thought I was being serious was because the short film was originally called banjo you see um so like and, and i'm like okay this will be so fucking stupid to do let's see if i can do it yeah. so i forced myself to go to the um to go to a starbucks coffee shop in sheffield like at least two or three of them like every morning before i started work and i'd write like five ten pages and i'm like oh shit there's a there's a film here there's a film here and i'm like fuck and then um you know after the races we went you know so we have all our questions. We've uh, we've pretty much narrowed most things down on a small chat. We segue, as we do on the gallery, across major platforms and all different stuff. Um, so I have one last question before we let it go, before I let Carl end it. Um, did you get billed for the college, for the blood and the, uh, the walls and the, uh, the roof? Oh. <laughs> and has so, that been paid? Yeah. <laughs> His face... <laughs> You th- I feel like you just brought yeah. back a traumatic time in his life there, Ash. <laughs> so, like, the, re- the reason why we were able to film there is because one of my good friends um, worked there, right? Uh, Chris Brammer. And um, 
So we thought we'd like spray paint the ceiling white. Well, do we know spray painting it white stands out more than the fucking blood, right? So then Chris says, Liam, um, the one to charge you, it was like, I think the one to charge me like 400 and something pound for the fucking, you know, um, ceiling, you know, like, like fucking things you can replace, Lift right? Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, completely right. You know, things you can replace. And uh, he, he says to me, look, Liam, they want to charge you like £440 and they want me to give them your address. Um, I'm not going to do that because I don't know <laughs> your address. Hell so no. I, you don't know my address. You don't know my address. <laughs> like, okay, good. Well, let's just not talk for a while. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's genuine. Yeah, so to answer your question, uh, no, I didn't have to pay it, uh, thankfully. Um I mean, look, that was our fault. I mean, you know, that was very irresponsible of us. And like, you know, trauma has those three rules of filmmaking. Number one, um, safety to people. Uh, number two, safety to people's property. And then three, in very small writing, make a good movie. And, you know, we uh, we fucked up rule number two. And, um, you know, you need to... Uh, every film set I'm on right now, like, I, when I'm directing, I am so obsessed with not... Like, like in the new movie, there's a head explosion in this uh, cinema, right? Okay. And I'm like, fuck. And like, there's a photo of me just like looking down with my hood over my head, looking depressed as they're setting up this shot where his head's going to explode inside a cinema. And, and Liam like, is like, please don't make a mess. Please don't make a mess. I'm just getting banjo flashbacks. flashbacks. <laughs> yeah, man, PTSD. It's like a Vietnam veteran, you know. <laughs> in trenches. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll let, go there, Carl. We'll, let, blood. We'll, let, we'll let Carl finish it. I don't know if he's got any parting words for us, um, but just for myself, like thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to. Um, oh, I know you're a busy cool. man for, for coming on here, and hopefully, um, Gallery can cover some stuff in the future for, for your next you know next films. Like I really would like to uh, see what Gallery can do for you. Even we're not going to a massive audience, but I think that we'd um, we'd obviously like to to be involved in any way possible we can with your future stuff. So where. So if uh, people are watching this, where can we find? Where can they find a copy of Banjo to, you know, go and watch it themselves? Oh, yeah, probably on like Pirate Bay and all these torrent sites. And, <laughs> right, uh, we're not going to do coming. that though. We're not going to do that. Oh, if you it. seeing as Banjo have made him no money in that side because of them, is going to they're going to go to the UK distribution site and pay for it and put some money in your pocket. That that's what they're going to do. So where can we find your socials? Well, okay, watch so your socials for us. Oh, sure, man. Yeah. I mean, just to answer the, the first question is, um, I, I, you know, I'd recommend people waiting for the director's cut just because, okay. you know, uh, that will put money in my pocket. <laughs> so right, so, um, where, so yeah. there you go. Waiting for the director's cut. <laughs> yeah, which um, should be on sale from October. Uh, hopefully, okay. which would. Um, my socials. Um, um, so Instagram, I am Refuse Liam. Um Facebook, I'm Refuse Liam, and Twitter, I'm Refuse Liam. So there we go. There we have it. Yeah, there we go. That was simple. Type Refuse uh, Liam in on Google, and it'll bring them all up for you. Yeah, so thank you very I, much. We appreciate all your time and effort. We appreciate everything that you've done for independent film. Um, and I think that that's about <laughs> it. Any any parting words? Carl, let me have some nice words of wisdom at the end of a podcast. Any any nice words of wisdom, Carl, to end it? Um, well, to say we're on about the trend and going on a, and following trends, don't be the trend. No, don't follow the trend. Be the trend. That's my work part in words. Wow, that's like deep, man. Deep. <laughs> <laughs> he puts this on me every week. He does. 
Yeah. I, I feel like um, that's changed me. That so thanks. <laughs> <laughs> really? Luckily, I'm like I'm like a guru. Oh, I did. <laughs> like, yes, you're a guru. So, Just make sure, make sure to like, comment, subscribe, and all that jazz, and we'll see you on the next one. Peace. Thumbs up. Give it a thumbs up. Like, comment, and subscribe, people. Thank you.